And welcome on into episode three of the Maze Cast, and uh, we're coming to you live from the lair on the coldest day that we've had here in the Philadelphia area in over a year. A very cold, brisk Martin Luther King Day Monday, the day after the championship games. We're going to get to both of those. Uh, we're going get, to get get to uh, some of this Belichick Brady dominance, and really a look at the rest of that division the AFC East and why this has been happening. But we also have a juicy story here locally in Philadelphia that came out this morning in the Philly Voice uh, from Joe Santaliquito that says, Exclusive sources inside the Eagles paint Carson Wentz as quote-unquote selfish, uncompromising, and playing favorites. The franchise quarterback quote-unquote complicated the offense, sources said adding he didn't want to run Foles' stuff. Now, you see that, that's going to get your attention, and that's going to get my click in this day of clickbait stuff. That's juicy, and I want to read that. So I I, uh, clicked on it, and I actually printed it off here on my color printer and went through this line item by line item and, uh, you know, did what I always do. I get out a yellow highlighter. I jot notes in the margin. I ask questions of myself. And that's the way I go through a piece like this. So I figured we'd just do it live on the air here on the Maze Cast. So when I see that, I say selfish and uncompromising. Now, those are two characteristics that a lot of times, you know, is meant to be demeaning and it's unattractive. I get it. However, I think there's a certain degree of that in every successful person and especially every successful quarterback in the NFL, franchise quarterback, nonetheless. I think there you need a, a degree of selfishness. You need to be somewhat uncompromising. Uh, as far as playing favorites, I know exactly what, they, what he was talking about there before I even read it, and that's the whole Zach Ertz thing. Let's just get to that right away. Yes, I think Carson Wentz favors Zach Ertz, although I think there's been quarterbacks throughout history that have favored certain receivers or backs or whatever teammates during their careers. You know what I mean? You could go through, you know, Manning's receivers, Brady's receivers, his tight ends, all the, you know, all, all the great ones, you know, have favored certain guys. You know, I mean, Jordy Nelson with Aaron Rodgers for all those years. You know, there are guys, there's guys that they trust. That's the bottom line. They trust the guy's going to, you know, not only get open, but when he throws in the ball, he's going to catch it. So, you know, I think we, we try to make that into a bad thing. Do I think he looks for Ertz too much? Yes, I do. I think to a fault, but the, it's not a bad thing that he has. A, he's one of his favorite targets or is his favorite target because he trusts him. So, you know, there's that. But I, when you read this, it's pretty easy to see. I mean, Joe Santaliquito didn't make this up. He didn't make these these quotes up. He's getting this from people either inside the organization or on the team or both. And there's somebody in here, and I don't know how many of them. Maybe there's only one guy. That really said all this damning stuff. But somebody in there is not ex- exactly enamored with Carson Wentz and the perception that he has to the fan base and you know to the, the national media, the local media, and therefore through the fan base. He doesn't like this golly gee Midwestern, aw shucks guy, drinks milk, doesn't curse, goes to church and goes hunting and just hangs out with his dogs and now his new wife and he, he doesn't do anything bad. He doesn't like that perception. <laughs> And he's trying to put, he's trying to, to say that that's not really what Carson Wentz is all about. Oh, well. 
Uh, I'm going to go through this here now page by page. I just highlighted some stuff. Uh, says that over the past two months, Philly Voice spoke with more than a half dozen players, plus other sources close to the team who all requested to remain anonymous, fearing repercussions given Wentz's power within the organization. Okay, well, if you're going to go on here and speak to a reporter who's asking questions, and you're going to go and, and, and paint your starting quarterback or your franchise quarterback in a negative light, put your name on it. I mean, what, what is in it for these, these people or this guy or whoever it was or however many there were to go telling Joe Santa Liquido cer- certain things? Like what, what is in it for you trying to make the guy look bad? I, I don't get that. I mean, he's the future of the, of the whole organization. And then it says at the end that all these people want him to succeed. Well, if you wanted him to succeed, then maybe you should just keep your mouth shut or put your name on it, one or the other. Uh, we go on here. It says that uh, some circles blame the Eagles' offensive failures on the new coordinator, Mike Groh, who admittedly, remember, you know, admitted to the media and the fan base that he had a tough time working Golden Tate into the offense. So I don't know what to think about Mike Groh. I'm not overly enamored with Mike Groh, but this is going on to say that it really wasn't Mike Groh. It was Carson Wentz, and he may have been the root of all the Eagles' offensive problems. Grow is a quote-unquote good coach who was bullied by Wentz, according to sources. Bullied. Oh, my God. All right. Selfish, uncompromising, egotistical, one who plays favorites, doesn't like to be questioned, one who needs to practice what he preaches and fails to take accountability. Wow. That is a blast. In fact, that's what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven blasts all in a row. Whoever this person is. Really doesn't like Carson Wentz. But I know the fan base, they hate to see this, and and they point the finger at the journalist. Well, he's not making this up. Somebody's telling him this stuff. Keep that in mind, people. Numerous sources confirmed Wentz was once verbally attacked by a highly respected teammate for not being a quote-unquote team guy. Man, I want to know who that was. Carson Wentz's biggest enemy is Carson Wentz. He's had his ass kissed his whole life and sometimes acts like he's won 10 Super Bowls when he hasn't played in, let alone won, a playoff game yet. It goes on and on and on. Now, I don't know about Carson Wentz having his ass kissed his whole life. This guy went to North Dakota State, okay? So he wasn't getting his ass kissed enough. If you end up the second overall pick in the draft as a quarterback, and you went to North Dakota State, I have a hard time thinking you got your ass kissed your whole life. That's a reach, all right? This guy didn't go to Ohio State. He went to North Dakota State. All right, we'll keep going here. Uh, Wentz, according to sources, created friction within the offense. Now, this goes on to to sort of describe the way it was back in 2016 and 2017 when you had Frank Reich here and John DeFilippo. And they apparently were the guys that sort of helped to rein Carson in. Uh, when Carson wanted to, to go rogue, in essence, with the offense. Now, okay, I can buy some of that. You know, Reich and Filippo, there, there was obviously an adjustment period, and maybe they're still going through that. Uh, Doug's still maybe going through that right now. You know, there, there was a brain drain on the offense. There, you know, there's change. You're, you're going to have some ups and downs. It, you know, it might take a while for that to get its feet. But here they're blaming Wentz for this, too. I don't, I don't get that. It says here, according to multiple sources, Wentz tended to, quote, complicate the offense. He didn't let it come organically as Foles did. 
Wentz could complicate two plus two. Oh, my God. Whoever's given this really doesn't like Wentz. I, I want to know who this guy is. Um, I don't understand what letting the offense come organically really means. I mean, it's I, I take that maybe I guess Foles is just sort of running the play for what it is. Uh, what you know the play design, the way it's designed, the progression, the way the progression's supposed to read one, two, three, you know, um, from this receiver to this receiver, this side of the field to the other side of the field, whatever it is, you know, I guess what uh, you know, Foles is just sort of running the play for what it is, and Wentz tries to change it, add his own little uh, flair to it. I don't know, but I, you know, organic offense. I'm not really sure what that means. Wentz didn't want to run many of the concepts of this offense because he felt that was Foles' stuff. Now, that sounds really derogatory towards Foles. Sounds like Wentz doesn't want to be anywhere near Nick Foles. But was that the direct quote or was that the source's interpretation of what he thought Carson was doing? I don't know. Doesn't sound good, but that's a juicy line that'll get your attention and it'll get the piece read. Um, it's a very interesting piece. I suggest everybody read it, draw your own conclusions. Um, Foles, every source stated, would go through the progressions within the offense exactly how it was designed to run. Okay, there's what I was saying. And he'd hit the open receiver. That is one thing that I buy. I mean, Nick Foles, watching him, would get the ball out of his hands. He wasn't interested in holding on to it for too long, trying to, you know, trying to make a play with his legs. That's not his game. He would take the play as it's designed, and he'd get the ball out of his hands and get it to a receiver, a tight end, a back, whoever it was. We checked it, had to check it down. He'd check it down. But he'd just get rid of the ball. And I think there's, there's some real merit to that that I think Wentz can learn from here. You know, I don't think Wentz is without fault here. I think this goes overboard and a little bit of hyperbole. But I think there, you know, there's got to be some truth to this as far as Wentz's struggles with the offense, his struggles with himself. I'm sure that coming back from this injury has been very frustrating. You know, and then he gets the back issue, which I understand was, was more painful than people were letting on. And you know, this has got to be really frustrating for him. Here he sees you know, Nick Foles become the darling of the city, lead the team to a, a Super Bowl championship as the backup. And, you know, he wants, to, he wants to gain back the power. He wants to gain back the fan base who, you know, in some ways have forgotten about him. I get it. Trust me, I do. You know, did he push himself a little, maybe a little too hard to come back too fast, too soon? Possibly. Yes, maybe so. Did that, in essence, exacerbate, you know, some other issues and maybe cause this back injury? I don't know. I'm not a doctor, as I stated many times on my radio shows, but uh, it, the possibility exists. It could have been. Um, this goes on to say that uh, Wentz also had the propensity to pull the ball when he was about to hand off to a running back and check it down to Ertz. Despite having one of the best offensive lines to run behind, it would frustrate the offensive line, the running backs and the wide receivers. Basically everyone on the field at the time with the exception of Wentz and Ertz. So this is the, making it out like it's Wentz and Ertz against the world. I think that's kind of an easy conclusion to draw. He does favor Ertz, but is you know is he is he intentionally not giving it to other players to give it to Ertz? No, I don't believe that at all. Um, let's see. It goes on here to say that Wentz was so hell bent on getting back after Foles led the Eagles to the Super Bowl that he risked his own health, the health of the offense, and the health of the Eagles in doing so. Now I buy some of that. Yeah, I believe that. He's that much of a competitor. That was his Super Bowl to win. 
Think about it. He was on his way to an MVP. You know, some people forget how good this guy is and was two seasons ago. Or a season ago, excuse me. But he wanted to, he wanted to get back to that guy. I think he pushed it a little too hard to, be, to get back to that guy too soon. Uh, it says here, consequently, Wentz's scope of the field was far narrower. He pressed going into games. The running backs and wide receivers would openly question how many touches they'd get because they felt Wentz wouldn't look their way. The offensive lineman grew angry because Wentz's indecision would cause him to hold the ball longer than necessary, resulting in sacks and hits. Now, he does that. Linemen are growing angry. Uh, It's a little much. Uh, You know, and as far as the other backs and receivers wondering if they were going to get their touches, well, are they worried about the team or are they more worried about their own stats? I mean, if that's the case, you're making it sound like, you know, Wentz is this awful teammate. But then these running backs and wide receivers, they're more concerned about getting their own touches, it seems. So, uh, and then it, this, this was another juicy part of the, the piece here, right? Uh, Peterson asked one of the more prominent offensive players to define what accountability means. The player was so fed up with his limited role under Wentz, the player said nothing. He checked out. He checked out. Wow. Now, is, is that Alshon Jeffrey? You know, because everybody, you know, says, well, you know, Ertz gets all the throws. Alshon Jeffrey doesn't get enough throws. Is it Alshon Jeffrey? Is it Nelson Aguilar? See, this is the problem that when you read this stuff and you start saying, man, I wonder who that guy is. This clue leads me to think it might be this guy. You know, without guys putting their name on it, you're, you're left to wonder, you know, is, you know, is, is Alshon Jeffrey and, and Carson Wentz, do they not get along? Are they bad teammates? All that kind of stuff. I just wish guys, you know, if they want to trash somebody, would put their name on it. That's all. Um, you know, Wentz is frustrated with the injury situation. It was hard to watch Foles win and earn the adoration of fan base. Carson wants to get back to being the man. But, I, you know, I get all that. I understand it. But he can learn from what Foles did, and I think he should take a cue from Nick and uh, just take what the offense gives him. You know, just run the play. You don't have to try to make the big play every down. You know what I mean? Like, just take what the offense gives him. But that being said, uh, you know, Howie and the personnel department, Joe Douglas, Andy Weidel, et cetera, need to go out and get this guy a a real running back and bolster that offensive line because, you know, due to age, possible retirements now we're talking about, injuries, uh, that thing's falling apart. You got Brooks, who's got a uh, you know tours Achilles. Unfortunately, that's that's a, a bad injury. It takes a while to come back from that to get to hundred percent. Who knows what he'll be all about? Kelsey's talking about possibly retiring. Um, you know, and Jason Peters. You know, we we seem to be asking this the last couple of seasons. Is this is this the end for Jason Peters? Just because of age and and uh, you know buildup of of injuries, nagging injuries. He's got a back issue. He's always got. Uh, Seems to have injuries, you know, around his knees and so forth. So it, it, they got to bolster the offensive line, get him a running back, and I trust that Carson Wentz will return to the form of 2017, and everything is going to be all right. All right, now we got to get to the championship games. What a day. And you had two championship games that both went to overtime. You had great drama, but unfortunately you had greater controversy. And that starts with the Saints-Rams game. I'll get to it, obviously. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. 
I had the Saints, full disclosure. Everybody knows I had a ticket on the Saints that I got at the Ocean Resort back in the summertime at 17-1. to 1. So I had a vested interest in Drew Brees and Sean Payton winning the Super Bowl. So I obviously was on that side. I was really dismayed when they only salvaged two field goals in their first two possessions. And the second one came off that interception that put them in plus territory right away. You know, they ran, they ran three plays, and it got five or six yards, had to kick a field goal. That was very disappointing because, you know, at some point, even on the road, the Rams' offense was going to wake up. You know, McVay and Goff would, would hit their stride at some point, and you're going to need some touchdowns. You don't win games, you know, settling for many field goals, especially with the offenses like these teams have these days. Uh, and down 13, well, the Saints had the 13 nothing lead. You know, they're dominating the game, and McVay fakes the punt at around his own 30, and they gained a first down. The, the punter threw a nice pass. Looked like Johnny Unitas. And they, they gained the first down, and that stemmed the momentum for the, for the New Orleans Saints. It kind of calmed that building down, which was absolutely bananas. It was over 130 on the decibel meter. Nobody could hear anything on the Rams' uh, offensive line. You know, Goff couldn't hear. He's got ringing in his ears. McVay shouting and nobody's hearing him. It was unbelievable. But that fake punt, much like the week before with the Saints doing it to the Eagles, changed the momentum of the game. Goff settled in. They eventually got a field goal. It was 13, uh, what was it, 13-3. Then Goff really settled in on a nice seven-play, 81-yard drive, got the touchdown just before half, and it's 13-10. The Rams are back in it. Now, in the second half, I was stunned that Big Balls McVay didn't go for the touchdown when he had fourth and goal inside the one-yard line. He chose to tie the game with a field goal, 20-20. to That shocked me. And then the rest of this game was just unbelievable. 20-20, to and Breeze and the Saints are driving for what should be the game-winning score. He's got a first and 10, Breeze and Peyton do. Now, I don't know if, if Peyton called this play or if Breeze checked to a pass. I don't know. But they threw the ball on first down. First and 10 from the Rams' 13-yard line. The Rams, I believe, had two timeouts. And you run the ball there, make them call one of their timeouts. That was a big mistake on somebody's part, whether it's Peyton, Breeze, or both of them. Um, What followed on the third down was one of the more egregious no-calls that you're ever going to see. And it had helmet-to-helmet to boot. Now, I don't want to hear about anybody talking about player safety and their concerns for you know, concussions uh, when, when you see these helmet-to-helmet plays that are obvious and they don't even call them. But that should have been a first down and goal for the Saints because it was an obvious pass interference. The player even admitted it. Everybody in the building and everybody watching on television throughout the world knew that that was pass interference. That was like one of those plays you see in college where the cornerback never turns to the ball and just bum rushes the wide receiver before the ball gets there. You're like, what are you doing? Turn and look for the ball. Try to make a play on the ball. It, it reminded me of, of a college situation. But anyway, the, the, the defensive back was stunned because he thought he was going to get a flag. And he should have gotten a flag. I don't understand how all those officials, the, all the ones that are looking at the ball, I got some of them are you know, looking at their own area of the field that they cover, but there had to be three or four officials 
looking at that play as it's happening. And none of them even thought to reach for the yellow hanky. This is in a league where officials can't wait to throw a flag on the most incidental of contact between defender and receiver, game in and game out. And this was flat missed by the entire crew. And then you have Al Riveron in New York admitting to Sean Payton, hey, we blew it. Sorry. You could have gone to the Super Bowl. And you think about this, and everybody's going to say, oh, who cares about this guy or who cares about that guy? But, you know, if you care about the game, you care about legacies of the great players. Drew Brees is a great player. He is a lock Hall of Fame player. He's one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the game. And his legacy could have gone, he would have had the opportunity to get number two. And he's got one. He's got a gold jacket. He's already in the Hall of Fame. I get it. But one Super Bowl win compared to two Super Bowl wins is a big deal. It's a big deal. Add that to the coach, too. And I know a lot of Eagle fans don't like Sean Payton. uh, But I'm not here to play favorites. Sean Payton gets two. He's in the Hall of Fame. So, you know, there's a lot of things that ride on on guys doing their jobs and, and getting things right. Now, should how do you fix this? I don't know if you can fix it. You know, do you give the teams, you know, a special red flag to throw once a game? They can they can challenge a no call or they can challenge a penalty. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure that's something they're going to discuss with the competition committee, uh, of which I believe Sean Payton is a member as a coach. So I'm sure this is going to get discussed because it's just a shame that we had two great games, uh, the way you know the way these games played out, and yet most of what we're talking about is a no call in the first game in New Orleans. Uh, but bottom line is the Saints should be in the Super Bowl because that would have given you first and goal. The Rams are then you know calling timeouts, and eventually you know they call their final timeout. You run the clock all the way down. Lutz comes on and kicks the game-winning field goal, and it's a walk-off for the Saints. Rams never get the ball. And I, you know, I, I hear guys all saying today, hey, New Orleans could have stopped the Rams from going right down the field and getting the, getting the field goal to tie it at 23 to send it to overtime. Yeah, that's true. But the bottom line is, if everybody does their job, the Rams don't even get the ball. So, I, you know, I have to go back to that. The, the play was missed. By the entire crew, Rams shouldn't have gotten the ball back. Period. End of story. Should have been a 23-20 final. Saints win. All right, now the second game. Oh, man, what a, what a classic fourth quarter uh, this game was. It wasn't the, the most interesting of games uh, You know, for the first two, three quarters. Uh, the Patriots really were dominating the game. I mean, Mahomes wasn't good. Uh, you know, you think he finished like uh, he completed like maybe fifty percent of his passes. He wasn't sharp, but boy, did he make some plays in the fourth quarter. He even when he's not good, you can't take your eyes off the kid. He's unbelievable. You know, he just makes plays seemingly out of nothing. You know, he's got this super strong arm. He's got the guts of a burglar. You know, he'll go incomplete, 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 and then all of a sudden he makes an unbelievable play. Throws across his body, does all the things you're not supposed to do. Uh, but he he makes plays, and Brady is brilliant when he needed to be. Uh, you know he had a couple interceptions. He wasn't great, but he was great when he needed to be. And D Ford, my God, can he just line up on sides? Chiefs should add another pick. Chiefs should be going to the Super Bowl. D Ford lined up in the neutral zone. 
That is inexcusable. Now, a lot of people are, you know, a lot of hand-wringing today I saw on social media that the overtime rule needs to be changed because a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes should get the ball in overtime at least once. And Andy Reid should have the option, you know, of having his offense on the field once at least during the overtime. Stop. Again, it's a coin toss, but it's not we're going to drive the ball, you know, six plays, get in field goal range, kick the field goal and go home. They had to score a touchdown. They went all the way right down the field, scored the touchdown, the game is over. They did change the rule years ago to make it not as coin toss friendly because all you have to do is get two first downs, kick a field goal and go home. You've got to score a touchdown if the game's going to end. You kick a field goal, Andy Reid and the Chiefs get the ball back. I like the rule the way it is. I don't see any reason to change it. And Andy Reid, by the way, now, according to my count, is 1-6 in in championship games. And he was favored. That's seven games now. Seven games. He had one win in an NFC championship game. They beat the Falcons at the link as a favorite. He was also favored against Tampa Bay, Carolina, the Arizona Cardinals on the road, and yesterday at home against the Patriots. So he's lost five times as a favorite in championship games. That's unbelievable. One and six. But I think uh, with this kid as quarterback, I think Andy Reid's going to be getting back to more AFC championship games. He's going to have more opportunities to get to a Super Bowl. And I think I'm going to say, if you had to say, make a bet. Put money on whether Andy Reid will or will not win a Super Bowl in his remaining years with the Kansas City Chiefs, I'm going to bet that he does. I think Andy Reid gets his Super Bowl eventually. Maybe it's next year. Maybe it's two years from now. As long as uh, Mahomes can be healthy, that offense is going to hum. And I think Andy Reid will get his ring. Andy Reid will be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, He is one of the best, if not the best, coach around that doesn't have one. I mean, Marv Levy, I'm sure, would would fight for that. And there's a couple other guys, too. But Andy Reid has had a great career. He's missing that one thing. But I think this kid, Mahomes, will get him over the hump. Now we got to look at this Patriots dominance because it is something to be marveled at in, in sports. It's, it's probably, you know, you talk about those old Yankees teams back in the 20s. Uh, you talk about, uh, you know, the UCLA teams under Wooden in the 60s and 70s. Uh, you know, there, there's some other tremendously dominant franchises, the Niners in the 80s, uh, the Steelers of the 70s. But this is unparalleled success. Belichick and Brady. And I'm going to go back to 01, which is the, the year that Brady became the starting quarterback. So I'm going to forget about the year 2000, uh, where I believe they were under 500. The Patriots were. Since 01, that's 18 seasons now. Since 01, the Patriots have been in nine Super Bowls. Nine in 18 years. They have 10 straight AFC East championships. And we're going to get to that. 16 of the 18 years, they won the NFC East. So they finished second in the division twice. They've won the division 16 times, 10 straight. They have gone to eight straight AFC championship games. Think about that. Eight straight years. Their fan base has been taken right to the end of January. They've gone to 13 total 
AFC Championship games in those 18 years. They are 9-4 and four as a duo in AFC Championship games. 9-4. and four. The two years that they did not make the playoffs, once was in 2 the year after their first one, their first Super Bowl win against the Rams. In 2 they went 9-7, and seven, didn't make the playoffs. In 8 Brady got hurt week one against the Chiefs. And Matt Castle came in to be the, the starter for the rest of the way. They won 11 games and missed the playoffs. That was the year, I believe, the Miami Dolphins won the division. But, uh, you know, he wins 11 games with Matt Castle, doesn't make the playoffs. Now let's look at the rest of these teams in this division. I, 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 more has to be made. I know, we, you know, it's, it's, it's great to, to prop up the great players, the great coaches, but we, gotta, we can't not throw absolute shade on these three donkey franchises, and they've been donkeys for the last 18 years. The Dolphins, the Jets, and the Bills. I mean, they, they, they just don't even stand up to the, to the Patriots. And you might as well, you know, Brady going into, what, what is he, 41? You know, he could, be, he could just go right to his 43 years old. You could just pencil in five to six wins in the division and home field in the playoffs. And I got to blame these other three organizations. I looked at the Dolphins, Jets, and Bills since 01 and how many coaches they've gone through, some of the names of the coaches that they've gone through. The amount of times they've actually just qualified for the playoffs. And then I looked at the quarterbacks. Boy, you want to talk about a, a, a who's who. You look at the Dolphins since 2001. Juan Stat was the coach. Now, he made the playoffs the year before in 2000, and he made it in 01. Then that was it. He was gone a few years after that. Saban comes in, didn't make the playoffs, uh, took the wrong quarterback, didn't get Breeze, couldn't get Breeze past his medical uh, people, or maybe the whole history books would have been changed. But bottom line, he didn't get the quarterback. He eventually goes back to college and becomes the greatest college football coach we've ever seen. Cam Cameron comes in for, I think, one season. Tony Sperano. You're hiring Tony Sperano as your head football coach. Now, he made the playoffs in 08. They won the division in 08. Other than that, no playoffs. Philbin. Joe Philbin, talk about a bozo. And then Adam Gase, and he made the playoffs in 2016. So the Miami Dolphins, since 01, have qualified for the playoffs three times in 18 years. Look at some of the quarterbacks they had. Jay Fiedler, A.J. Feely, Gus Ferrat. Boy, there's a threesome. Dante Culpepper, that was Saban's guy. Joey Harrington. Trent Green spent some time there. Chad Pennington, Chad Henney, the Chads, uh, Moore, Tannehill, Cutler, and Osweiler. Wow. Awful. Just can't get it right at coach or at quarterback. Now the Jets. Herm Edwards made the playoffs in 01, 02, and 04, and he actually had two wins in the playoffs. He was 2-3 and three in the playoffs as the Jets head coach. So they made it three out of four years. Mangini comes in. He made it in 06, lost. Rex Ryan comes to town with a lot of bluster. And actually, things started off really well. 09 and 2010, he makes the playoffs. They actually beat the Patriots in the playoffs. Uh, Rex had four wins uh, in the playoffs. 
in those couple of years. Then Todd Bowles comes in, and uh, it was a disaster. Some of the quarterbacks that the Jets have had, Pennington, Favre, that one year where they started out like a house on fire and then uh, lost four of their last five, I believe, that season to finish 9-7 and seven and out of the playoffs. Mark Sanchez had some limited success with Rex Ryan. Geno Smith. Who drafts Geno Smith in the first round and thinks he's a franchise quarterback? I want to meet that guy. Uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick uh, had some decent success there, but uh, he always ends up being who he is in the end. McCown, and now Sam Darnold. And I actually think Sam Darnold can, do, can be something, and we'll see if uh, Adam Gase can put some sunglasses on so we don't have to look at his eyes and get the best out of Sam Darnold. The Buffalo Bills, now you talk about ineptitude. The Buffalo Bills have made the playoffs once in those 18 years. Since 01, they made the playoffs once, and that was just last season with Sean McDermott in 2017. Greg Williams got a shot. Mike Malarkey got a shot. Dick Jaron got a shot. Chan Gailey. Doug Marone spent a uh, season or two there before he opted out. Rex Ryan and now McDermott. Some of the same names, you know, crossing uh, teams in the division. All to no avail. Alex Van Pelt, Rob Johnson, Drew Bledsoe, J.P. Lossman, Trent Edwards, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Has he played for every team? E.J. Manuel, remember him? He, they, I think they drafted him with a first-round pick. Kyle Orton was there, Matt Castle, Tyrod Taylor, Nate Peterman. Who thought Nathan Peterman was, a, was an NFL quarterback? Oh, man. Maybe the same guy that thought Geno Smith was. I don't know. But now they got Josh Allen, and Josh Allen is showing some glimpses that he actually might be something, so who knows. But think about the ineptitude of those three other franchises. You know, when you think about the greatness of the Patriots, I don't think I don't think you can think of one without the other. Is my point. All right, so that's enough on the playoffs. Enough on the Patriots. I tell you, another observation I had: Tony Romo is absolutely spectacular, in my opinion, as an analyst. Now he was only two and four in the playoffs as a quarterback: eight touchdowns, two picks. You know, not a whole lot of success. But he's undefeated as a color analyst. Man, this guy knows every play that's coming. That final drive in overtime uh, that the uh, the Patriots ended up scoring the winning touchdown with Burkhead, he knew every play before it was run based on formation. He's even saying when they killed the play, Brady's killing the play, that, all right, they're killing the play, Jim. They're going to run motion, and it's going to be a run to the right. Sure enough, here comes a receiver or a tight end, I can't remember which, in motion. Across the formation, Brady snaps the ball, hands it to a running back who runs off to the right, off tackle. He knew the the exact play. If he knows the plays because of his preparation, and he must look at a ton of film. You got to give the guy credit. Whether you like him or not, the guy is prepared beyond belief. And he knows the calls. How How does the defensive coordinator not know what's coming? How does the, uh, the captain of, of the defense not know what's coming to get guys in the right position? I, I, I don't know. I mean, he basically, I think he could be a defensive coordinator. Now, he'd have to take a severe pay cut, and he's not doing that. But I'm just saying, I, I, I'm just blown away by the guy. He's so prepared. He loves football, and he's so enthusiastic. I think he's just, he's turned the clock back on Jim Nance a good 10, 15 years. Nance sounds like he's having a time of his life too. 
So I think I think it's a great broadcast. Uh, you know, they're getting the Super Bowl this year as CBS. So I look forward to a uh, a Tony Romo and Jim Nance call of the Super Bowl, which will now be the Rams against the Patriots. I know some are uh, saying that maybe this uh, this is the year if Brady can win this one. I mean, he's been to three straight. He's been to four of the last five Super Bowls. And if he wins this one, it would be his sixth, right? He got five. This would be his sixth. And it would be symmetry to his first Super Bowl was beating the Rams as an underdog. This time, they're a favorite. I believe the game opened at a pick and it moved to New England minus one and a half quickly. This would be a slight favorite if things stay the same. But it's against the Rams. And Giselle's been clamoring and campaigning, you know, anywhere that anybody will uh, turn a microphone on to hear her, that he needs to quit. She wants Tommy out of football before somebody knocks his head off. Uh, he just loves it so much. But maybe, you know, he wins it this time. Uh, you know, he's beaten the Rams again. And he's had, you know, the most unbelievable 18-year run that any athlete in any sport has ever had. And he calls it quits. I don't know. I don't think so. I think the guy loves it too much. And he has the enthusiasm of, you know, a player in his first three, four seasons. He looked like a, you know, a 25-year-old uh, running and jumping into the arms of his teammates after that game went final yesterday. And, you know, he's got the biggest smile on his face. Uh, he just seems like he's loving football as much or more than he ever did. And win or loss, I'd, I'm going to believe it when I see it. I'm not speculating that he's going to walk away. I think he wants to be here longer than anybody. I think he really does see himself at the age of 45 still playing quarterback in the NFL. And if you're one of those three other franchises in that division, you had better start lobbying with Giselle to get him the hell off the field. And I tell you, Phillip Rivers might want to join that course too because Rivers isn't going to win squat either as long as Brady's here. He had his best chance a week ago, and they came up as small as they could. So maybe uh, Phillip Rivers, the Chargers, you know, put the Steelers in there too, and Tomlin, and the, the rest of the AFC East. Just go and have a meeting with Giselle and start, you know, start working on Tommy to quit because that's really the only chance they have. All right, final take of the day, and uh, don't forget to – Log on to thebrandedsports.com. You got to go there every day. They got they got great content, fun content, something there for everybody. You go there multiple times a day, and you're going to laugh your ass off. Great stuff at thebrandedsports.com. I appreciate for them, uh, you know, hosting this podcast. Uh, also, you got to check out Derailed, my podcast uh, with Aton Shander. Uh, we've done 11, 12 episodes now. And having a lot of fun doing that. That's available at thebrandedsports.com. It's also available on iTunes and anywhere you find podcasts. Derailed. Uh, the other thing here, the PGA Tour take of the week. It's not going to be about the tournament that just was, the Desert Classic. I uh, try not to pay much attention to the Desert Classic. My start of the PGA year is this week at Torrey Pines. But this story caught my eye. Henrik Stenson. Uh, the the big Swede was interviewed over in uh, Abu Dhabi, I believe, prior to uh, the tournament there, and he was asked a question of whether he would, if he had to choose between 
his three wood, which is a Callaway Diablo Octane Tour, which came out back in 09. If he had to choose between that club or his wife, what would it be? That's a great question. He calls the club Old Trusty. And if you watched him at all back in the 2016 Open Championship with that great duel between he and Philip Mickelson, that guy didn't miss a shot. It was one of the most spectacular rounds of golf you'll ever see. The final round at the uh, 2016 Open, Stenson went on to win it. Mickelson played out of his mind, and Stenson was just better. And he hit this three-wood off of practically you know, every tee, any tee that you would use for a driver, he used the three-wood and he's driving at you know, 299 yards right down the middle. And it's been his safety net. The current value at a club, according to the PGA value guide, is all of $16.20. But it is gold to Stenson, says the article. And he says, if you had to choose only one, what would you choose, your wife or your three-wood? And Stenson said, that's a very easy question. It would be the three-wood. He would take the three-wood over his wife. And then he looked at his watch and he says, uh, the time is, uh, yeah, she's sleeping. She's in the U.S. She's sleeping, so I'm safe for now at least. That's great. I wish I hit a club that good that I could even think of choosing it over to Lima. I would love to be able to come home and say, listen, hon, I am so good with this 56-degree wedge you know, around the greens that I would choose it over you, but I can't. All right, that's episode three of the Maze Cast. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, reach out to me on Twitter at HarryMazeTU. You can uh, send me an email at HarryMaze at TheBrandedSports.com, HarryMaze at TheBrandedSports.com. You know, topic ideas, complaints, positive messages, anything you want to send me, that's where you send it. Follow me on Twitter. Follow Branded underscore Sports as well. Thanks to Brian McLaughlin for engineering the podcast as he does every week. Does a great job. And we will talk at you next week from the Super Bowl. Yes, the Maze cast will be on hand at, on Radio Row for Super Bowl 53 in Atlanta. And I got to uh, thank Joe Krause and all the folks at 97.3 ESPN in Atlantic City for helping me get there. So I really uh, look forward to that. We'll talk to you from Atlanta.